Welcome to the Pro Rata Podcast, the podcast that takes 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Filling in for Dan Primack, I'm Nicholas Johnston. On today's show, do deficits matter and who is sharing your DNA data? But first, the growing crisis in Venezuela. At least two people were killed over the weekend when a U.S.-backed effort to deliver humanitarian aid across the Colombian border was met by forces loyal to the Venezuelan government. The clashes are the latest flashpoint in Venezuela's continued spiral into economic devastation. Vice President Mike Pence is in Colombia today to speak to a group of nations working to solve the crisis. He'll also talk to opposition leader Lon Guaido. It was recognition of Guaido as the legitimate ruler of Venezuela earlier this year by the U.S. and other nations that accelerated the situation. Since then, sanctions have been stepped up on the regime led by President Nicolas Maduro, and concerns have grown about military action being the only solution. For now, the Trump administration has been promising more humanitarian aid and stepped up economic and diplomatic pressure. But of course, in typical Washington speak, all options are on the table. And the stepped-up U.S. involvement comes as President Trump has been dialing back the U.S. presence in other hotspots, such as Syria and Afghanistan. What's behind the Trump's interventionism in Venezuela? And what role is Mike Pence playing? In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on those questions with Axios World Editor David Lawler. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C., Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're now joined by Axios World Editor David Lawler. David, hello. Great to be here. What is going on in Venezuela? So we knew a clash was coming over the weekend uh, for quite some time. The opposition leader and self-proclaimed interim president Juan Guaido led a caravan of opposition supporters out to the border between Venezuela and Colombia. And the plan was to transport U.S. aid back across the border into Venezuela. President Nicolas Maduro said, you can't do that. And there were clashes at the border between the opposition and between paramilitaries and security forces. Uh, Several people were killed. Dozens of people were injured. The aid did not get across the border, but about 160 troops defected to the opposition, according to uh, Mr. Guaido. So is that a lot? Is that a little? I know all last week we were talking about how bad will it be? Will this be the powder keg moment that sort of sets uh, Venezuela aflame? Was it? So for Maduro, this is probably a win for the time being in that he showed that the military is still under his command, uh, that he can still keep control of his border. But obviously, his isolation internationally is only going to grow images of, of troops opening fire on on civilians. He you was know, setting it, fire to the the relief supplies, right. too. Right. So you, you have food and medicine right. trying to cross a bridge, and you have uh, it literally being set on fire and destroyed. So those are not images that will win him any friends in the international community. Uh, it could have been worse for him, obviously, if it, you know, uh, Marco Rubio spoke with our colleague Jonathan Swan and said, if the aid does get across the, the border, it will show that the emperor has no clothes, yeah. basically. So he still has clothes, but he doesn't have many friends. So Vice President Pence, I think, is on the ground in Venezuela as of this morning. Uh, So what's he doing and what's next? He is. So he is trying to continue to keep the pressure up internationally. He's meeting with leaders in South America. He's meeting with uh, Mr. Guaido. Uh, The idea is that the U.S. is completely bought into this. We are committed. We're not going anywhere. Um, And we need to take the next steps, whether that's sanctions. uh, They're still saying all options are on the table as far as military intervention. Um, So the, the idea, I think, for Pence is to keep the pressure on. 
Why is the U.S. so bought in to this? There's a lot of sort of speculation of why Trump loves this so much, is so interested in this. We had something over the weekend in Axios. Right, exactly. So, so Trump himself has, um, you know, according to Swan's reporting, he views some conflict zones around the world as sort of unfixable. Syria, he thinks, is never going to be a prosperous country. Uh, he looks at Venezuela and he says, first of all, I know Venezuelans. Uh, he's tweeted about that. He, he knows Venezuelans uh, in Florida. Uh, he says they have all that oil. It should, by all accounts, be a wealthy, prosperous country, and yet it's not. And so this is something where he, I guess, thinks that he can fix it. And Pence has also been, this is another thing that, that yeah. Swan wrote about, Pence has been uh, leading the charge on this as well. He has a history with the Venezuelan opposition, and this is an issue that matters a lot to him. So basically everybody who matters in the West Wing cares about this issue. My view is it's classic Monroe Doctrine. <laughs> Could <laughs> you remember that from history class. Uh, no. So what's next? Um, so, like I said, I mean, the big question is whether there's going to be some sort of military intervention. I don't think that's coming tomorrow. Uh, but if you have the Venezuelan military continuing to stand by Maduro and you have the Trump administration saying this is untenable and we are going to make sure. I mean, you, you had Rubio tweeting pictures of Gaddafi after he was he was toppled in Libya. So they are saying Maduro is not staying in power. Maduro obviously has no intention to move aside. Uh, one question is, do they do it by force? Uh, do they hope that the sanctions basically cause the regime to run out of money, which is not an unlikely scenario? You could see them literally run out of hard What's currency. What's the time frame, the timeline on We're that? We're talking months, think? potentially, uh, there. And so th the question is, do they think this has to happen now? And if it doesn't happen with plan A, plan B is, you know, by force? Or are they? is there a little bit more patience? Thanks for coming by, David. <laughs> Great to be with you. My final two coming up next. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique Smart Brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. First, Warren Buffett released his annual letter to shareholders over the weekend, and he's highlighting a change of heart on the deficit. He admits to being someone who used to regularly preach doom because of government budget deficits. And in light of the U.S. debt passing $22 trillion recently, he revisits the topic. Thinking back to the start of his investing career in 1942, he notes the U.S. was about to embark upon decades and decades of runaway deficit spending. With that foresight, you wouldn't want to buy stocks. You'd buy gold, he says. Of course, Buffett admits he didn't have that foresight and bought stocks. Well, an ounce of gold bought for $114 in 1942 would be worth about four grand today. That money put into the stock market would be worth more than $600,000. The bottom line from Axios is Felix Salmon. There's no evidence from 240 years of American history that the level of the national debt has ever really mattered. Buffett says deficit hawks have been preached doom and gloom for decades and never been right. Second, millions of people have been paying to take DNA tests to learn more about their ancestors. What they might not realize is that those companies are sharing that data with law enforcement, drug makers, and app developers. MIT predicts more than 100 million people may be part of commercial genetic databases within the next two years, and these databases aren't covered by federal privacy rules because they aren't run by health providers or insurers. The bottom line, services that started out as novelties for genealogists have now gone mainstream, and our genetic record is just one more part of our identity being harvested online. And we're done. My thanks to producers Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers, and thanks to Dan for letting me borrow his podcast for a day. He'll be back on the mic tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast. Thank you.